Listening Dog Media. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, okay. Three, two, one. Blast off. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. (laughs) Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. I just remember it being a world of really exciting things. All you've got to do is throw your hands up in the air whilst looking at your feet transfer. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. I had this little cassette deck and I'd just drink whiskey and uh, dance the night away. And here with me, obviously a DJ. Hearing that for the first time, it was just completely, completely blew my mind. A music producer. Yeah, I'm like a sort of musical magpie, just like dipping in and out of lots of different styles. A festival creator. Once we'd got our brains back together, we sort of thought, well, maybe we should throw a festival. And a meditation teacher. You sort of reset your whole mind and uh, come out feeling fresh. Now, when people say, how can I get ahead in DJing or get ahead with my record label? Do those things that I just said and you'll be the one that gets the job. They always had this very understated way of championing people that played great music and never going down the showbiz route. So, I, yeah, I doffed my cap to those guys. We were looking out at these crowds just going, wow, is this what we... Just what we planned, but um, but yeah, it was it was beautiful while it lasted. It's Rob to Bank. Hi, Robbie. <laughs> Hello there. That was quite an intro. Thank you. Well, you're quite the guy. Um, where <laughs> did it all start for you? Uh, probably like quite a few of our peers listening to the late great mighty John Peel on um, Radio One, tucked up in my bed at night after I'd been sent to bed inordinately early by my mum, still going to bed at about seven thirty when I was sixteen, and so uh, yeah, I had a chance to tune into John's shows and listen to weird and exotic music from around the world and it's my escape still is you know music I wasn't the class clown I wasn't the sportsman (laughs) I wasn't anything at school actually I was just the shy little kid in the corner. Were you known to be into music by your mates? What happened is when I got to about 15 and actually started getting some kind of sense of fashion and uh, idea of style then I realised that maybe my place in the world was to be the the party starter and the entertainer. So I got my boombox, you know, my ghetto blaster and with my favourite tapes and I'd make kind of party mixes, make little black and white hand flyers to hand out and, and I'd just sort of hold beach parties in our local village and just for like 30 or 40 people, like friends and stuff and other people would turn up. And, and so that's probably the start of me DJing really. I was, had this little cassette deck and I'd just flip different tapes in and drink whiskey and uh, dance the night away. Where was that? I was in a little village called Warsash on the south coast, so um, it wasn't a hot spot at all. I mean, this was just as Manchester had kind of struck. And then Portsmouth, where I went to school, suddenly everyone was wearing flares and daisy T-shirts and stuff. And so we were in this remote little village, but things were filtering down to us from other places. And do you remember what you were playing on that boombox back then? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I still love now, so 
from like you know Fred Wesley and James Brown, you know, on the funk sort of side of stuff to disco to indie. So you know, Stone Roses and Happy Mondays were just kind of starting Charlatans, and then things like Talking Heads and Lou Reed, Velvet Underground, but not all cool stuff like that. I'm sure I was playing some absolute pop nonsense as well. You know, anything like Adam and the Ants. Um, yeah, lots of very diverse things. It does feel like quite a sophisticated taste for a teenager. Well, my best mate, Giddy, he had two brothers and at the age of 15, they started all taking me up to London. And so we were kind of queuing to get into the WAG club and all these, you know, sort of post-acid house sort of raves and stuff. And so it was his fault, really, because I I was a clueless little square kid wearing corduroys and just probably practicing my trombone. And And then I met him and was born into... Just the end of Acid House, it was like 89, 90. Yeah, these trips to London, which was completely eye-opening, going to like Red or Dead and Sign of the Times and all these really cool shops. And what do you remember about those clubs that you were going to in London? Well, we never actually got, got into the WAG, so we queued up every weekend <laughs> for about two years. Um, you know, we were, like I say, 15, 16-year-olds, so we, we didn't get into those. But we did get into others like the Cask and Glass and things like where we go and see Norman Jay, Giles Peterson. You know, so on the one hand, we'd be going to Bagley's and listening to Goa Trance when trance was actually not a dirty word and loving that and going to raves in the woodlands around Oxford. And then on the other hand, we'd be going to these very dressed up kind of funk and disco clubs. So, yeah, I I still wish all those things were on because they were probably some of the best clubs I ever went to. Did it feel like a world away from where you had grown up and were living? Oh, crikey, yeah. I mean, you know, in Portsmouth, as a school um, treat, we'd go down the Gaiety Show Bar on South Parade Pier and, you know, dodge being beaten up by Navy sailors who populate Portsmouth. Although Portsmouth, luckily, has really pulled its socks up since then and is a brilliant place to go out. But yeah, so to go to London and to go to, you know, Kensington and Camden and Soho, it was so exciting. Did you always feel like you fitted in? Not necessarily, no. I mean, I was borrowing clothes off my friends. You know, we were quite ragtag, you know, quite scruffy, um, borrowing records off each other, trying to learn our own style. And that maybe took a few years to dig in and, you know, still something I'm working on now. Did music start to take over then? What was going on with your education at this time? Yeah, my education. (laughs) I wasn't really sure what I was doing. Even when I was 18 and left school, I I had no idea where I was going. I, I didn't have this sort of mad vision of being a DJ or a festival promoter that was you know I know some people you know at 12 and they're like yeah I'm going to be this and that and I it, that was not on the card so I was very much looking for what I was going to do in life but everything that I did seemed to come back to music in some way you know like I mentioned the trombone earlier I spent all my teenage years playing the trombone in my dad's brass band which sounds kind of square but I loved that because I was learning how to play music and sight read and learning to be in a band even if it wasn't a trendy rock band then I was in our own band when we were about 15 16 called Mr McHenry's Mad Cow and we were doing like Pixies covers and making up our own sort of punky indie tracks and then yeah listening to the radio bought my first set of decks when I was 16 record decks and started learning how to mix so it it was a sort of gradual progression evolution but it wasn't like that was my whole thing I was also sailing in the UK team in dinghies and going sailing four times a week after school so I was yeah it wasn't like a, a, a one trick 
pony kind of just on music. I, I had lots of other things, but yeah, education wasn't one of them. So might sailing have been another career path? Yeah. I mean, when I was 18, I sort of stood at this kind of virtual crossroads, but I wanted to go on the Whitbread Round the World race and sail around the world with all these leading yachtsmen. And on the other hand, I wanted to go to university and I ended up going to Goldsmiths in South London and you know, discovering the Ragga Twins and drum and bass and, um, well, jungle, sorry, and, you know, club culture instead of uh, sailing. So, yeah, but, you know, where I live now on the Isle of Wight, I go sailing as much as I can. So, yeah, it's uh, always been a love. When did you first get paid to DJ? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I was 17 and it was the Rhino Club in Southampton or the Escape Club, I can't remember which it was called, and... Yeah, I remember walking in and hearing House of Pain jump around for the first ever time. And that is such a clear memory for me because I know everyone knows it now. It's like an anthem and it's such a well-played tune. And it's still, it still sounds amazing every time. But hearing that for the first time, it completely blew my mind. But yeah, I was DJing upstairs. I was playing like early kind of house for that time. So um, UK kind of house and a bit of jungle and stuff like that. But I was yeah probably paid like £10 if I was lucky. Were you still learning on the job at this time? You said you taught yourself to mix. Yeah, I mean, I remember even when I was on Radio 1 and playing, you know, at festival in front of 40,000 people thinking at some point someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, mate, you, you really need to learn what you're doing properly. I mean, I, <laughs> I did, I think, by default of just playing so many gigs get probably quite good in the end but I didn't lock myself away in my room and practice for hour after hour I still can't really scratch I can mix and I can beat mix and since the advent of technology with the CDJs and stuff it's, it is so much easier but I yeah I learned my craft on to um, techniques and even some belt drive decks so you know that for people that have learned to DJ on those, then they know it's a lot harder than it is on, on CDJs. But I think that's great because it gives you this sort of real leg up. And once you get onto CDJs and MP3s and stuff, it's a breeze. How did you get the job on Radio 1? Uh, another another kind of happy accident, as my whole life's been, that I was... Um, well, I had a club called Sunday Best, which is essentially what went on to become Bestival and Camp Bestival. And that was in South London. And that was one of the first sort of bar club freestyle things which at the time you know there was just basically you either went to the pub which was full of old men and dogs or you went to a rave and it was pretty relentless kind of banging music and strobes and there was no bar culture and so this was right at the beginning of bar culture being born and I remember things like the dog star in Brixton opening and it was like wow, this is a place where you can actually kind of sit around and have a chat and read the paper or play a board game. And, you know, you don't have to be stood in a smoky pub or a total rave. Yeah, so this club kind of, everyone from Mixmaster Morris and DJ Harvey through to Andy Weatherall, um, David Byrne and Bjork were in there, um, Thievery Corporation, Groove Armada, Basement Jack. So we had the creme de la creme of 90s culture coming in there. And, and that went on to... Um, Basically, Radio 1 were looking for someone to host this new chill-out, in inverted commas, thread that they had on a Saturday morning. They'd sort of heard about Sunday Best being the, the place to kind of hear chill-out, amongst other things. So they got in touch and asked if I would do a pilot. I completely crapped myself because I'd only been on the radio on Kiss FM once in my life as a guest, and I'd never hosted a radio show. I had no idea how to do that I didn't have a grounding in hospital radio or anything and then suddenly I was there in the in the studio in radio one having to 
press all the buttons and you know I thought someone did all that for you but as you well know you're a one-man unit a one-woman unit and yeah it was kind of scary but somehow they they went for my <laughs> my very freestyle crap style and uh yeah that, that was the sort of start of it have you always been happy with the chill out tag no <laughs> i mean <laughs> it's it's difficult one to explain to someone like my 15 year old son he loves a lot of those records but I, it just happened to be one of the scenes that was there at the time but like i say i was playing funk and disc i was playing techno i was playing early trance and i was playing chill out it just happened to be that Sunday Best kind of was the, the place to go and listen to that music. And it, w- it was a wind down. It was a Sunday afternoon, evening kind of club. So it wasn't a house club. And people like Weatherall would come down and play pop sets or reggae sets or kind of what you might call a chill out set. Harvey would come down and play like weird, weird 70s kind of chill out stuff. So, yeah, it did kind of get tagged with that thing. And I was, I was a music journalist as well, and I was writing about a lot of those acts. But I, I, I love all that music. It's just that Chill Out became a bit of a wallpaper bland thing at some point, and then it wasn't so, it wasn't so great to be part of that scene. Just like Sunday Best turning into Radio 1 for you, it also turned into Festival, as you've mentioned. That was a big leap, I would imagine. It was, yeah. It was a it was a leap into the unknown. I mean, the biggest thing we'd run at that point was a takeover of the Radio One stage at Glastonbury because they knew we threw fun parties. So we had like Fatboy Slim, the Cuban Brothers, Dub Pistols, and stuff. And everyone was dressed up. Everyone had inflatables. I mean, this was in the days before people really got dressed up, and it, it really kicked off at Glastonbury. People really got into it. And, you know, lilos and inflatables, and people dressed up as horses and elephants and stuff. And it was, it, and obviously mix up everything else that goes on at Glastonbury it, it, it was a, yeah it was a pretty wild um, parties that we threw and and so I suppose we went away from that and uh, once we'd got our brains back together we sort of thought well maybe we should throw a festival and at the time it was you know Creamfields and Homelands these amazing sort of day festivals so we thought we'd just do one for a day and call it best of all find a nice site on the Isle of Wight and you know six months later we were opening the gates at our our first festival on the Isle of Wight, you know, it was it was very surreal, you know, literally sitting in a pub going, yeah, let's put on a festival and then, you know, collecting the tickets on the door while trying to make cocktails for the people in the bar and DJing and being a security guard. So, yeah, it was a, it was a baptism of fire. We really went into it so naively, um, borrowed some money, got ourselves in huge financial um, <laughs> crisis straight away. It was always just kind of very hand to mouth. And obviously it went on to be a huge taste-making pioneering boutique festival, but, you know, it got up to 55,000 people and, and it was like we were looking out at these crowds just going, wow, is this what we planned? But yeah, it was, it was beautiful while it lasted. Yeah, it was taste-making, it was award-winning and so much love. Camp Festival, of course, followed it in Dorset and now you're about to launch in Shropshire, where I'm from. In your home county. Why Shropshire and why now, Rob? Well, you know, we knew you were that from there, Chris. So we thought, um, <laughs> why not give Mr. Hawkins his own <laughs> festival in his backyard? You know, Camp Festival has been going for 14 years now. It, it was the offspring of festival and, it, you know, it reflects the fact that we've got a family ourselves and we wanted somewhere for people to go where they could have the same kind of experience that they might have at a festival or a Glastonbury, but with their kids. So obviously a lot less of the recreational late night um stuff that goes on at other festivals in fact none of that but a a very sort of fun adventurous 
festival where people get away from their screens, they get back to nature, they have a real laugh with their with their families. A lot of people, you know, first time they've slept in, in a tent with their family or, or been to a festival with their family. So lots of firsts. And, and it's been going so well that we thought we'd give one to the rest of the country because I think, you know, Camp Festival does bring people from all over down to Dorset. But we get asked so many times, you know, we don't want to sit in the car with our kids for six hours, nine hours coming down from Scotland or Manchester or Leeds or whatever. Can you put one a bit closer, jokingly? And, and, and so we have. It seems to have gone down well so far. Very exciting. It's going to be the, the best thing to come to Shropshire since uh, the Iron Bridge. <laughs> OK, time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here now. All the questions are on 45, Steve's. You just say when and I'll dip into the box. When? Is your life normal? <laughs> Is that a title of a song track? If it's not, it should be. <laughs> yeah. Um, is my life normal? Yes, I think it's very normal. I love washing up. I like getting the kids ready for school. I like helping with homework. I like cleaning out the pygmy goats in the garden, <laughs> which doesn't sound normal. But um, yeah, it is, it is pretty normal, actually. I, I like normality. I liked craziness in my 20s and 30s, but in my 40s, I like normality. What if I asked your wife or any of your kids the same question? Is your dad normal? What would they say? Yeah, probably more normal than people might think. Not that I've got any ideas that people think I'm weird or wacky, but yeah, kind of fairly pedestrian, I'd say. All right, very modest, I'm sure. All right, back into the box for a second question. Just say when. When. Radio or playing out? Oh, definitely radio. But again, you know, if, if you'd asked me in my 20s or 30s, then, you know, it might have been... DJing. I think DJing is amazing, and it, it, but I think, you know, it's not a comfortable thing to be stood in front of loads of 18-year-olds or 25-year-olds trying to keep up with them. So I, lo I love playing at parties where people, not necessarily my own age, but people are there for a freestyle selection, which is why festivals are so brilliant. But I think radio is very nicely selfish in that people are only tuning in because they want to listen to what you're doing most of the time. Whereas in a club, you have to play what people want on the radio you can kind of play what you want which i like when you were doing the blue room when john peel died i know he's a huge hero of yours uh, you covered for him didn't you for a little while how was that yeah i mean that was one of the most um amazing yet sad things of my career i mean i went into radio one on the day that i was covering and i was in super early because i was so nervous i was in at like eight o'clock in the morning and no one was there and then one of the controllers came in looking very ashen faced and called me up into his office and said look rob i've got some bad news uh, john's died in peru and it was like what <laughs> you know like, I'm, I'm here to sit in to do his show because he's away and now he's not there at all it was just the most surreal day and then and then basically all the radio one djs and all bbc staff started coming in one by one and everyone decamped to john's favorite pub down uh, great portland street and you know steve lamack marion hobbs and charles peterson everyone was in there sort of drinking his health with me crapping myself that i was going to have to sit in for him that night luckily they I think Joe Wiley maybe and, and uh, Steve Lamack did in the end. But then after that, after the first couple of days, they did put me in the hot seat. And it was it was an absolute pleasure um, in a sad way because John had annotated all the forthcoming shows and he had this insane sort of notebook full of all the tunes he was going to play with the date he was going to play them on. So really, I was just actually playing the records that he wanted to hear played on those dates. He, he probably um, would have hated the fact that I was 
even sat in his seat. So for me, it was a huge, huge privilege. Very, very scary few months. But looking back on it, you know, great education. How would you say you picked the music for your Worldwide FM show? Pretty scatter shot. Um, obviously, as you know, you know, radio DJs or DJs get sent a lot of music. So that's one way. I don't really, because we live on the Isle of Wight in the middle of nowhere, I don't really go to a lot of record shops anymore. But I will occasionally, you know, get some stuff from a record shop. I'll buy stuff on online, on Bandcamp, listen to the likes of your good self and obviously the, the Six Music family and, and other stations as well. And then, you you know, you go down a rabbit hole, as you know, so you, you start listening to something on Bandcamp or Spotify or wherever it is, and then you, you hear something else. So, yeah, I'm like a sort of musical magpie, just like dipping in and out of lots of different styles. DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I never want to be a sort of bore about well-being and wellness. So I think everyone knows their kind of limits, and so you just kind of have to play to those. Being the first one there and being the last to leave is a really good way of showing people that you're very dedicated. Back into the box for your third question. Just say when. Boom! Now. <laughs> How does DJing make you feel? Ah, happy, nervous, um, excited scared i love being in a dark club in the corner playing in a booth where people aren't looking at me if i'm on a stage in daylight in front of lots of people it terrifies me you know i'm 48 and i still haven't got over that i think even people like annie mack have recently you know said that they don't actually feel that comfortable being in front of that many people looking at you so i i sort of yeah it depends where and who it's for. It's a beautiful thing when it goes right and, and you're playing records and mixing them together well and people are having a transcendent experience, if you will. I did a private party the other week and luckily I was playing for six hours, but it took me about two hours to actually get people going. They were off doing other things. But yeah, it was uh, sometimes you just, you're just like, why am I doing this? Why? Come on, Robbie, do something else. <laughs> Grow up and do something else with your life. Which are the best clubs you think you've ever played? Well, I was resident at Fabric in Room 3 for quite a few years, so that's obviously up there. You know, Basics in Leeds, um, lots of different clubs in Manchester. I mean, I was lucky enough to play Belfast in Liverpool, Chibuku, um, the Warehouse Projects in Manchester. But probably the one that I think, you know, has done the most in doing the least is is fabric because they always had this very understated way of championing people that played great music and never going down the showbiz route so i yeah doff my cap to those guys did you do you get nervous oh yeah yeah i get nervous about djing i don't get nervous about being on the radio so much because it's got that more anonymity um to it but yeah I, I definitely get nervous i get nervous about having to make speeches i get nervous about having to even talk to our big festivals team sometimes if we're doing a sort of face-to-face thing but i i've learned to understand that those nerves are, are actually kind of useful and once i get going as long as i'm not sick all over myself then i, I normally get through it and <laughs> manage to get away with it you're big into meditation does that help it has done and it does I've been meditating on and off for over two decades and in the last three or four years, twice a day, every day. So it definitely helps in so many ways. It connects you with a real sense of self-awareness and, and sort of removes a lot of the worry about things that you don't need to worry about from your life, which is kind of cool. How long do you meditate for each time? Uh, for 20 minutes. So twice a day, 20 minutes, which when I'm teaching people, they're like, I'm never going to find the time to do that. Are you crazy? And then people realise that actually 
that 40 minutes that they carve out in their day is probably the most fruitful way to spend their time. And then they, you know, get it in their diaries and realize that getting up 20 minutes early and finding a broom cupboard to meditate in the afternoon is a really good way to spend your time because you reset your whole mind and come out feeling fresh. What would you say is most important when it comes to well-being? Is there one single factor that you would say makes your life better? That's a brilliant question. I think one that everyone wants to know the answer to. I mean, I I think it's, you know, balance, which is a bit of a cliche, but I drink alcohol, I drink caffeine, I um, still go clubbing and festivals. So you don't need to live the life of a saint, like a hermit in a cave. It's, It's not that some people, I think, are put off by the very word wellness or well-being or or mindfulness but it's it's yeah being mindful of what you're doing is is good so if you're going to drink eight pints of beer you know then you know you're going to probably have a cracking hangover the next day and feel a bit rubbish for a couple of days and you know that can bring with it anxiety and all all of that so you, you then learn how to kind of make choices through being a bit more mindful never want to be a sort of bore about um well-being and wellness so i think everyone knows their kind of limits and so you just kind of have to play to those do you still have time to produce music as well i definitely would never say i don't have time to do it i just probably haven't had the opportunity i mean i recorded as lazy boy with mr dan who's dan carey who recently obviously wet legs um producer but it's done everyone from kylie to franz ferdinand to black midi and you know some i mean he's produced a lot of the best records of the last 20 years um and we're still really good mates and we keep saying we must finish that uh, that second album. But I mean, no, I, I don't is the, is the short answer. And if I was ushered into a studio, yeah, I, I mean, I love being in a studio and coming up with ideas. It's, it's very creative, but um, yeah, it probably falls down my list a little bit these days. All right, back into the box, Rob. Here you go. Say when. Stop. Will you share a secret from your career? Oh, crikey. Um... Always be the first person to turn up. <laughs> it's not much of a secret, but uh, it's set me in really good stead. Um, so I did work experience for about three years at a music magazine, and that sounds ridiculous these days to do, you know, not two weeks, but actually about three years. And <laughs> I did start getting paid a freelance wage towards the end of that, but I didn't actually have a job, and I, I just stayed there until they gave me a job, and it took that long. So I think, you know, being the first one there and being the last to leave is a really good way of showing people and bosses that you're very dedicated. And I still sort of try and stick to that, be punctual, be polite and be the first one to turn up. And I can actually just, you know, when people say, how can I get ahead in DJing or get ahead with my record label? But, you know, do those things that I just said and you can find that actually a lot of people don't bother getting out of bed early enough and then you'll be the one that gets the job. Don't be fashionably late. Exactly. All right. Final question from the box, Rob. Just say when. Stop. When a night's peaking, what do you love to play? Ah, very good question. Um, I mean, that has obviously changed a lot over the years. So I think the one, you know, the probably the record or the, the MP3 or WAV that I reach for now is the Kaluski edit of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons begging just because it, it has rescued me on quite a few occasions in the last few years. It's very fast, but it tends to get everyone going. And and the old sort of thing of getting the ladies dancing, it may be a cliche, but I still hold true to that, that men do tend to be a bit slower to get on the dance floor. So if you can get the girls dancing, and this is a great track for that. Rob, there were your five questions from the box. I've just got a handful of quick fires here, if you're all right with that. Sure. 
Do you plan your sets? No, as people can mostly tell from uh, the <laughs> haphazard. No, I, I really always never really wanted to do that. I love the fact that you know I could play hip hop into drum and bass, into house, into acid house, into sort of a down tempo track, and then whacking a bit of Dolly Parton or or Stevie Wonder. And it doesn't always work, but at least I'm sort of being experimental. And another one: Do you have a DJ hero? Yeah, we've talked about him a couple of times, probably Harvey, just for the fact he can play an eight-hour set and go from, you know, Led Zeppelin to Bangra to techno and, and still make it all hang together. So, yeah, he, he, he's, a, he's an amazing DJ. And do you have tech of choice? I'm very, very easily pleased, but, um, I mean, I do tend to use all Pioneer stuff and I just think that CD stuff is just way ahead. Yeah, very easy to use for a simpleton like me. So, yeah, probably Pioneer. I know you don't teach it often these days, but what do you turn up with? What do you mean kit-wise? Is it two memory sticks? Yeah, 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 two or three, because uh, I do tend to leave them in um, CDJs at the end of the night. So, uh, yeah, yeah, headphones. And, you know, if I look back at me going to Miami or Norway or wherever it was back in the day, and I'd have two huge record bags. In fact, they're sat in front of me now. I can see them, so I've kept them. But... Just the thought, the back-breaking thought of getting on a flight and then getting on a train and then slogging across town with these two massive bags of records of which you play about 15 or 20 and then you take all 70 or 80 of them back home. It's just bonkers. Yeah, the secret DJ talks in his book about still sweating once he's got sat down on the plane from getting all of that music on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you'd be worried about, are they getting crushed in the hold or is someone going to nick them? (laughs) It was a whole different world. I've got one last question for you. Um, you have to play the last three records on Earth. What would those three records be? Am I playing them to myself or to everyone else? A global audience. Well, I've chosen three quite slow, sad songs because I just sort of imagine floating off into infinity afterwards. So they're not sort of hands-in-the-air bangers at all. Personally, you know, if you gave me a choice between some happiness or the smiths I'd, I'd sort of <laughs> i'd turn the smiths on and, and that makes me really happy but i mean my, my actual tracks are prince sometimes it snows in april which i absolutely love and i used to drift off to sleep when i was about 15 or 16 with that in my tape player david bowie oh you pretty things which is from probably my favorite album of all time hunky dory and is a lovely life-affirming album to end your days on on this earth and uh sebastian tellier la retournelle just because it kind of was what i was famous for on the blue room it, the sort of tune that everything kind of revolved around and and it's just a, a wondrous work of art to uh listen to as you get blasted into infinity i always think of you whenever i play that song on the radio oh thank you (laughs) i I own that record (laughs) (laughs) and so many more um thank you so much for your time thank you chris thank you it's a pleasure uh rob debank and that was how to dj thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from 